Come on. It, it, did anybody see that on Facebook this week? Anybody? Is that your first time seeing it? It's awesome, isn't it? I laugh out every time I watch it. I'm laughing it all over again. It's so great. My, you might have missed it. My favorite part is where, where they, they say they, they do the right gifts after the, the diapers and the wipes. They do a gold Frankenstein and myrrh. Did you see that? And it's a frankincense. It's a little stuffed Frankenstein. So you can, you can find that on, on Facebook. So, hey, before we get into the sermon, just want to do one more thing. This is just for people who call City Life Church their home. But we're doing a December tithe challenge. One of the ways that we uh, avoid becoming that church that talks about money all the time is that we talk about it at strategic times throughout the year. And so December is one of those months for us because it finishes up our fiscal year. So we're on track this year. To, for, for 2016 to be the biggest giving year in the 11th year history of the church. Come on. So what we're saying is that as all the campus pastors met this week, we said let's set that bar really high and finish strong. And so tithing is a word that the Bible gives us that talks about a, a percentage of our income that we give to the church that we call home. It's, it's, it's 10%. I've been walking in this practice of tithing ever since I made a vow of devotion to Christ in December of 1990. And, and this is what I've learned, and this is what we teach our children. 90% of your income with God's blessing and favor is more than 100% without it. And, and, and everywhere else in the Bible, God says, it's a sin to test me, except this one time. In Malachi 3, God says, hey, I'm going to make an exception to that command. You test me in this. What, what, really what he's saying is, I dare you to try it. I, I dare you to try to experience something supernatural in your finances where blessing and favor comes on 90%. There's a supernatural multiplication. And it ends up more than 100% without his blessing and his favor. So what we're saying to you, if you've never done it before, do it for the month of December. Now, you might say, Fred, that's the worst month in the world to do a tithe challenge. And what I would say to you, it's the best month in the world to do a tithe challenge because you're supposed to feel it. It's supposed to be sacrificial and then it's also supposed to be worshipful. It's not a God tax, right? I don't know about you, but when I'm paying my taxes, I'm not happy. But when I'm writing a tithe check, it's an act of worship that's supposed to come from the overflow of my heart. And so if you're walking in that faithfully, keep doing it in December. And if you're not, then I dare you to try it. Come on. Well, we're launching a new series tonight called Magos Semian. We're going to talk about what that word means in a little bit. But just to kind of get our brains moving in the right direction, how many of you here have a nativity scene that you set up at your house? Let me, let me see some hands. All right, you got it. Maybe it's in the foyer. It's all the different pieces. If you're really fancy, you call it a crash. Anybody ever heard of that word before? I had never heard that word until a few years ago. Vanessa's grandmother said, hey, I want to give you the family creche that you can set up in your home. And I was like, did she mean to say crest? And she had a little bit too much eggnog. What is that? Didn't know what that word was. So when Vanessa was all excited, yeah, we would love to have it. And I'm thinking, hey, whoa, I don't even know what this thing is. It's coming into my home, right? So I grew up country, so we called it a nativity scene. Didn't know about this whole crash thing. So now we have one. It's set up uh, in our kitchen. And, uh, and so what, what are the animals? that you have in your nativity scene? Anybody? What's one? Sheep? Donkey? Cow? Yeah, anybody else? Camels? How about, we got a picture up here. All right, it's coming. There you go. Camels? There's one right in the foyer area. Not a camel, don't get excited. Don't get excited, but there's a nativity scene out there. So there's, there's camels. What else? What else do we have in the nativity scene? All right, come on, cat. 
I told her I wasn't going to say her name, but she... What else? Oh, there's the sheep. Okay, is it just me? When I see this, I think medium rare mint jelly on the side. Is it just me? How about lamb kebab with tzatziki sauce? Anybody else? All right, okay, there's lambs. All right, what's next? Give me what's next. Cows. Did it surprise you a little bit? Because it doesn't really talk about cows, but you know what? Cows are and have always been an important part of the agricultural system of the Jewish society. So cows, this picture is actually Mount Tabor in Israel. So there was probably a cow there if they were in the stable. All right, what's, what's next? How about this? You don't have an ogre in your nativity scene? A donkey. All right, maybe not this donkey. How about these? Maybe they'll look more like this. Is that not the best picture of donkeys you've ever seen? They're like the bandito donkeys, the donkey desperados. They just look evil, don't they? So, so they need Jesus, right? So that's why they were there at the nativity scene. Okay, what else, what else we got? I know. So we had the college young professionals over at our house uh, first Fridays, and so I'm talking, you know, because we're going to be preaching on some, talking about nativity scenes. I'm asking about the animals that maybe they have in their uh, nativity scenes. And I look down, I kid you not, for the first time, and, and this has been set up in our house for several years now, there's a dog in, with our set that I've never noticed before. And I thought, who put a dog in with the nativity scene? So I'm thinking it doesn't belong there. I'm picking it up. I'm checking the stamp. So it's got on its belly, made in Italy, right? The Vatican's there. They know a little bit about the Christmas story. And so all the, all the animals there. So I, I thought there's no reference of dogs in the Bible. So I was studying this morning. Guess what? There is. In Job, it talks about the dogs of the flock. So who knew you should add a dog to your nativity scene? Right there, sheepdogs, they used them. All right, how about this last one? Anybody have a demon dragon in your nativity scene? How many hands? Anybody? No, I know. But after tonight, you're going to be on Amazon and you're going to buy one. How about this? How about this? Did you grow up reading this story? Oh, this is a good story. It was the night before Christmas. When all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care and hopes that St. Nicholas would soon be there. The children were nestled all snug in their beds while visions of sugar plums danced in their heads. And Mama in her kerchief, I don't even know what that is, and I in my cap had just settled our brains for a long winter's nap when out on the lawn there arose such a clatter. I sprang from the bed to see what was the matter. Away to the window I flew like a flash, tore open the shutters and threw up the sash. The moon on the surface of the new-falling snow gave a luster of midday to objects below. When what to my wondering eyes did appear but a seven-headed, ten-horned dragon eating all the reindeer. <laughs> did you grow up with that story? I didn't grow up with that story. Did you grow up with that story? This is what I want to say to you tonight. As I age... My understanding of the Christmas story has to mature. As I age, my understanding of the Christmas story has to mature. 1 Corinthians 13, 11 says, When I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned 
as a child, but when I grew up, I put away childish things. Let me read this again. This is Paul writing, inspired by the Holy Spirit to the church of Corinth. When I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child, but when I grew up, I put away childish things. Again, so what I'm saying to you tonight is, as I age, as you age, our understanding of the Christmas story is supposed to mature. Now, I'm not saying that we stop being childish with our kids about Christmas. I'm not saying that we should stop being childish and having fun at Christmas. All the things that we do that's part of our Western cultural experience that's blended in with Christmas, I'm all for it. Have a good time. We're supposed to do that. But at some point, as we mature and our walk is devoted followers of Christ, we're supposed to move past just Matthew 2 and Luke chapter 2, and we're supposed to find our way into Revelation 12. Why is that? Because God put it in the Bible. And if he put it there, he put it to instruct us. And if you believe, like I do, that everything that God did in forming the Bible that he gives to us is intentional, then there's a reason that Revelation 12 is in there. Revelation 12, verse 1. A great sign. This in the Greek is megos semian, which is the name of this series. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head was a crown of 12 stars. Why is that important? Because it signifies that Mary was the instrument that God chose to bring Jesus into the world that would transition the world from Judaism to Christianity as the one true religion. And she was with child all of a sudden, just like in the video you saw. Come on. She cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. Revelation 12 is given to us so that we can see what was happening in an unseen world while what was visible to the world through Matthew 2 and Luke chapter 2 was happening at the same time. We're given an insight into the supernatural realm of what the Christmas story looked like to heaven. Verse 3. Then another sign appeared in heaven. Listen to this. And behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his head were seven diadems, which are seven crowns. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth, which I believe is a reference to the rebellion, which we're going to talk about in a few minutes, that happened in heaven before Genesis 1-1. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour the child. You plan on reading this to your kids on Christmas Eve? Yeah, don't recommend it. But we should be reading it to each other. Because as I mature, my understanding of the Christmas story has to mature with me. I can't live in the world of sweet baby Jesus in the manger and the sheep and the dog and the camel my entire life. It's a great place to start. It's a great place to go back to. But at some point, what we see in Christmas should be what God saw in Christmas when it first happened. Verse 5 says, And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations. Listen to what it says. With a rod of iron. We're supposed to understand him as the great shepherd and the one who loves us and chooses us. As Pastor David was talking about, that's, that's a part of our identity as a child of God. But what's supposed to be 
partnered with that is the reality that at some point Jesus is going to judge the world. And based on a decision that you make in this life, and some of you it might be a decision that you make tonight, is going to determine what he says to you in the end. Her child was caught up to God and to his throne, which is a reference to his resurrection. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that she would be nourished for 1,260 days. Now there's lots of conjecture here about what that means. I'm of the camp that believes this is a reference to Mary and Joseph and Jesus uh, fleeing to Egypt so that they could escape Herod and his attempt to kill Jesus as he killed so many other children during that time. It's important when you're reading prophetic text that you don't get too caught up in the details. And sometimes people do when they get lost. Sometimes the details are instructive. And then sometimes God is giving us details to create an impression. So I believe that the seven heads and the ten horns and the diadems, that those are not specifically prophetic. But he's trying to create an image that impacts us. And the impact is supposed to be that this Being called Lucifer is dangerous, he's evil, and he's powerful. Verse 7 says there was a war in heaven. Now it moves back in time. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon, and the dragon as his angels waged war against them, and they were not strong enough. There was no longer a place found for them in heaven, and so the great dragon was thrown down. All of this happened before Genesis 1-1. The serpent of old who was called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down to him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power of the kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night and they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb and by the word of his testimony. That's where we're going next week. For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, and woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he only has a short time. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman. Here, the reference to the woman shifts from Mary and goes to the church, who gave birth to the male child, who gives birth to the church in turn. But two great Eagle's wings were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and a times and a half time from the presence of the serpent. And the serpent poured water out like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. But the earth helped the woman and the earth opened up its mouth and drank up the river that the dragon poured out of his mouth. So what does that mean? The wings of the eagle is referencing the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that came to the church to empower them to withstand the centuries of persecution that started and continues on in many parts of the world today. The imagery of the earth helping and swallowing up that water, which is a reference to the persecution, is talking about how God will not allow you and I to ever be tempted or persecuted beyond what we're able to withstand. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children, that's you and me, who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Merry Christmas. Come on, right? It's sobering stuff. 
We're going to dig into this in this series, and we're going to talk a little bit more about why that is. And I know it's probably not the Christmas message that you were expecting to come to tonight. But it's the Christmas message that many of us need to hear. Because part of understanding what's at stake, it brings a sobriety to my spiritual life. And it will keep me from postponing the most important decision that you're going to have an opportunity to make in this life, which is the opportunity that Pastor David was talking about, that you've got to decide who you're going to choose. And as grown-ups, we tell the funny Christmas stories, just like the one on the video. But we're also going to tell the Revelation 12 Christmas story, because this is what was happening when Jesus was being born. There was a great battle that was raging, and you and I are a part of it today. And maybe it would help you to see something that looks a lot like it, so let's watch it together. Is near. Do as I say. Swords are no more use here. Over the bridge. to the secret fire, wielder of the flame of Arnor. The dark fire will not avail you, flame of Udun! Go back to the shadow!
Some of you are leaving here as soon as you can to finish watching that movie, aren't you? I know. Some of you snuck out the back door. i got to watch Lord of the Rings tonight. Now, you might be saying, Fred, I don't know if I like you kind of making the Bible sound like the Lord of the Rings. And what I would say to you is that J.R. Tolkien, who wrote the whole series, was a devoted follower of Christ. He was an avid student of Scripture. And that he's the one that led C.S. Lewis, Lewis to faith in Christ. And that when you read his books, we're not trying to make the Bible sound like the Lord of the Rings. When he wrote those books, he was building on the themes that he himself found in Scripture. And one day when I get to heaven and I'm going to find J.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, they're going to be up there smoking their pipes because people are going to smoke pipes in heaven. And, and, and I'm going to walk up and I'm going to say, I just got one question for you. The Balrock, Revelation 12, right? And he's going to nod and I'm just going to keep on going, right? <laughs> what you see there, that's make-believe. And it only had one head and two horns. And the one in Revelation 12 has seven heads and ten horns. And that's not a figment of anybody's imagination. God is revealing to us what he saw happening when Jesus was born in that manger. There was a battle that was raging for the salvation of the world and Lucifer who had been cast out of heaven, who is this beast. He might not look like this. In fact, I would say he probably doesn't because God is trying to give us an impression and an understanding of what he is, not what he looks like, that he's powerful, that he's evil, that he's hideous, and he's good at what he does. And if you want to learn how to stand on the bridge sometimes between you and your family and say none shall pass, then you got to come next week to learn how to do that. But you can't learn how to do that until you make the decision that some of you have to make tonight. You see, it's interesting that this phrase that happens right in the beginning of Revelation 12, this word great sign, in the Greek it's megos semian. Now, many of us are familiar with the word megas because it gives us the English word mega. And we see that all throughout, right? It's in the Transformers with Megatron. The lottery uses it, right? Mega millions. We understand when you use the word mega, you're saying it's bigger than big. It's like the friend who always has to one-up you, right? When you're telling a story, they got to tell a story that's better. When you make a shot on the court, they got to do something better. That's what this word is. Whatever you think big is, mega means it's bigger than that. John, this is one of his favorite words. Not megos, but semion. In the 69 times that this word appears in the New Testament, 17 of them are used by John himself, and then Luke uses another 13 times, and the book of Acts combines for almost half of every time this word is used. It's, it's used so often in the story of Jesus' birth, where it talks about a sign is going to be given to you. So he's used this many times. But when he gets to Revelation 12, he doesn't just use the word say me on, he says, Megos say me on. He's saying, this story that I'm going to tell you is the sign of all signs. It's actually bigger than the signs that you find in Matthew 2 and Luke 2. And if you think it's an exaggeration, then you're going to have to take that up with God who inspired the text. He wants us to understand what's at stake for you and for all people. So let's do a little history lesson. I'm not talking about the history that you learned in school. I'm talking about the history that's before Genesis 1-1. Lucifer, who is the devil, Satan, whatever name you want to call him, all the different ways that the Bible refers to him, was an angel in heaven just like Michael and Gabriel. 
and at some point, we don't know when, and we don't know why, he decided that he could do a better job than God. And so there's a massive rebellion in heaven. Revelation 12 refers to a third of the angels that he was able to convince. They're in the presence of God himself, and yet even still, he was able to convince them to defy God. He's good at what he does. He convinces a third of the angels to go to war in this great battle. They're not strong enough, Revelation 12 says, so they're cast out of heaven. Now this is what I believe, and I've taught this before, happened soon after that. God decides that he's going to create a new kind of being, and that's you and I. And his plan was that he wasn't going to create them inside of heaven like he did every other heavenly being. He was going to create a world, this world, outside of his world, and he was going to create mankind in that. And then when he created us in that world, you know what he did? He let this one, this seven-headed, ten-horned dragon and all the fallen angels, he gave them access to this world and to us. Why would he do that? Because God wanted you and I to experience what it's like to be separated from him. He wanted to give us what I call a comparative experience. He introduced sin to the world. The devil didn't trick him by showing up in the garden. He had to get God's permission to even get in there. And when sin was introduced to the world, what was introduced to mankind was the feeling of the existence of being apart from the one who is our father. Why would he do that? So that at some point in this life, which maybe it's going to be your point tonight, that you would have an opportunity to make a choice. And if you make the choice that I made in December of 1990 and that some of you, you've made in other services right here, a part of the City Life Church, that if you make that choice, you get to spend an eternity in heaven with God. Make no mistake, Revelation 12 says part of Jesus' ministry is to judge people when they die. And if you've made a decision for him, then you get to be with him for eternity. And if you've rejected him, then you get to be with the seven-headed, ten-horned dragon for all eternity. And he probably is a lot worse than what you saw on the screen. It's real stuff. It's not make-believe. It's not some fanciful story that's given to us to try to scare us into a choice. No, no, this is God saying, let me tell you what's at stake. Because when we get to heaven, if there could be a rebellion then, I think it's possible there could be another one at some point in the future. But you know what's going to be different this time? Is millions upon millions upon millions upon millions upon millions of beings that were not there the first time are going to be there this time. And you know what we're going to have? A comparative experience. And when there's a whisper of rebellion, you and I are going to say, we don't want any part of that because we've known what it's like to suffer. We've known what it's like to be separated from him. We've known what it's like to not live in this place that is perfect, that is a paradise, and I don't ever want to risk not being here ever again. It's by God's design that we suffer in this life. And I think he knows exactly how much each of us needs to suffer so that when we get there, we'll never want to leave and all of your life is about the moment where you choose Christ. And everything after 
That choice is about you helping other people to make that same decision. It was in 1990 when I was running from God. I had been running from God for 23 years of my life, and I was fast. Couldn't get away from him quick enough. And then all of a sudden, Magos Samian began to happen for me. Great signs begin to come into my life. I believe that this series is going to be prophetic because I believe that many of you, that for the last several months, you've been running from God and he's chasing you down. And he's been filling your life with signs to point you back to Christ. For some of you, your Magos Samian, it started tonight. For some of you, this is your first sign that God has given giving to you of the choice that you've got to make. I began to run into people that I hadn't seen in years. I began to, people began to recommend books to me that I was, started to read that began to point me to Christ. I began to read the Bible for the first time in my life on my own of my own choosing and found verses in there. It was like the Bible began to come alive to me. It wasn't just a book anymore. I began to have the craziest dreams. I began to have a series of dreams leading up to December of 1990 where Jesus was coming back. I was raised in the church, so I had a biblical knowledge, but I didn't have a Bible life because I'd never chosen Christ. So I knew I had the knowledge. And all of a sudden, God began to use that knowledge in these dreams. And Jesus would come back, like the Bible talks about, and Christians would rise up into the heavens, and I would just be standing there, and I was left behind every time, every dream. Until after I made a vow of devotion to Christ, I had that same dream again. And this time, I rose with everyone else. But it broke my heart because as I looked back, I saw all the people that I loved. Many of my friends were left behind. And I knew in that moment that I was going to give my life to telling people about the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is a choice that you have to make. Matthew 2 and Luke 2, let's keep reading that to one another, but let's, as we age, our understanding of the Christmas story must mature. We've got to get to a place where Revelation 12 begins to instruct us and teach us about something that is eternal. Is the decision that you make in this life is going to determine what forever is for you. So I've got three words that I'm going to talk to you about just for a few minutes. And the first one is this. It's called family. Let me read this verse to you. John 1.12 says, But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become the children of God. The only people that get to be in heaven for all eternity are God's family. It sounds exclusive, doesn't it? But that's exactly what the Bible says that it is. That's it. If we're going to be with him forever in this place called paradise, if we're going to overcome the one that exists in this world to devour us and consume us and to consume our purpose, then we've got to be in God's family. And God makes a way for that to happen. Let's look at this next verse, or this next word. It's reborn. John 3, 3, it says, Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. In the same way that you became a part of the family that you're in right now, right? Whether you prefer to be in that family or not, it's the one you got. And you didn't have any choice as to whether or not you were going to be in that family. That might be a conversation that you're going to have with God when you get to heaven. But the same way that you got into that family... It's the same way that we get into his family. 
is that we're born into it. In John chapter 3, this verse that we're reading, when Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. This is the conversation that he's having with Nicodemus, and it confuses Nicodemus, and maybe it's confusing to some of you. And Jesus said, no, 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 Nicodemus, you're thinking about it all the wrong way. It's not another second natural birth. You've already had that birth. That put you in this world so that you could have your comparative experience, so that you could be prepared for the eternity that you were created to walk in one day. But you've got to make a choice to be in God's family so that you can get to that place. And the, when you make that choice, you're rebirth, re- reborn in a spiritual sense. Now, what does that mean? Well, look at this other word. It's called a vow. John 14, 15 through 17, the first part of 17. If you love me, obey my commandments, Jesus says, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. You know why he never leaves us? Because the Bible says that he's inside of us. And he is, here it comes, the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. Invite the worship team to come back up. You and I have a decision that we have to make in this life. And the decision is whether or not we're going to make a vow of devotion to Christ so the Holy Spirit can be birthed in us so that we can be born into God's family. Let me say that again. You and I have to make a decision in this life. I made it in December of 1990. For some of you, as you look back on the story of your life, you've been close to moments where you were going to make the decision, but for some reason you pulled away. For some of you, you've, maybe you've made it, but you didn't mean it, and nothing really came alive inside of you. It could be that you made it, but you never had this sense of being born into the family of God because you really didn't know what you were saying, maybe because you did it as a kid. There is a decision that we make. And it's called a vow because Jesus expects us to take seriously the responsibility he gives us to devote our lives to understanding his teachings and then walking them out. And trusting that even though he knows we're going to make mistakes and we know that we're going to make mistakes, is that his forgiveness, which is what this table is all about, is there to pick us up and keep us moving forward. But when I make that vow, something supernatural happens. Something comes alive in me, the Spirit of God, and I'm born into his family, and the hope of eternity belongs to me for the rest of my life. And then where we're going next week is the power of the Holy Spirit exists in me so that I have the authority that I need to withstand the enemy that tries to rob and devour my eternal purpose. Stand with me. Father, I know that this might not be the Merry Christmas that people expected when they came in here tonight. But Father, I know that it's the Merry Christmas that many people in here needed to learn. And I believe that as we sing this song together, that there are going to be people in here tonight. There are going to be people that are in here tonight that have been walking in a season of Magos Semian, 
that you've been giving them sign after sign after sign after sign to bring them to this moment and to this decision. And for some people, this is their first sign tonight, but it's enough for them to make the choice that you want them to make. Father, we know that over these next few moments that you're inviting people to step into the sacred experience of being born into your family that people have been stepping into now for some 2,000 years. And we pray that they would find the courage to do it in Jesus' name. So this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to do it. Is that we're going to be singing this song, and as we sing this song, if you're here tonight and you're saying, Fred, I, I, I get what you're saying. I've never made that choice. I'm going to make it tonight. I'm going to ask you to, just as we're singing, that you're going to find your way to the front. Nobody's going to bother you. Nobody's going to come and try to take you into some other room or get you to do something else. This is just, it's your moment between you and God. It's your way of saying, I'm making a vow of devotion to Christ. I want to be born into that family. There's room here on this side. There's room here in the middle. There's room on there, over there. If you do want to pray with someone, there's people on either side. But if you don't want to, that's okay too. Because when I come back up at the end of the song to close the service, I'm going to lead you in a prayer that we're going to do together. Christmas is about your eternity. And Jesus was born into this world for you for this moment. Let's worship together.